Thank you for being here. Uh, let's continue in our worship by opening up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Mark 9, 14 through 29. Uh, if you have your Bibles or your apps, go ahead and turn there. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you don't have your Bibles or a Bible app, it's going to be up on the PowerPoint for you to follow along. Uh, so last week, we saw Jesus transfigured. He was changed on the mountaintop before his inner circle. Uh, that was Peter, James, and John. And in this transfiguration, there was an unveiling of his humanity because God is fully God and fully man. And he, was, uh, he had uh, an, an outer layer of skin to cover his divi- uh, divinity. But in the transfiguration, that uh, we see an unveiling of his humanity and the disciples saw him in his fullness of his glory. Uh, and this mountaintop experience doesn't last long. Like most mountaintop experiences, spiritual highs, it doesn't last long because there is a conflict brewing at the very bottom of the mountain, and that's what we're going to look at today. So let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he he has a spirit that makes him him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, the crowd came, uh, saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You know, there's this notion, uh, I think a lot of skeptics or even atheists would say that in order for you to be a Christian or for you to be religious, you need to have blind faith. Close your eyes and take a leap and hopefully something or someone will catch you. And I think this is a very popular conception that a lot of people have about faith. Right? It's, a, it's a blind faith because you can't see anything. Uh, I don't think this is actually the, the proposition of Christ, the Christian faith. I think Christianity actually invites us to open our eyes, to look at God, to see what's revealed about him, and then take a leap. So it's not so much of a blind faith, but more of an informed faith. Because God has revealed himself to us. The Bible makes it very clear that he revealed himself through us, uh, to us through creation, He revealed himself to us through his word, and especially and ultimately, he revealed himself to us in the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. So this idea of a blind faith, I don't think is accurate to what we believe uh, the Christian faith to be. Open your eyes, see who he is, and then make a decision. See, faith needs to start with the question of who is God and what has he revealed about himself? That's how our faith starts to form and take shape, is by asking these questions. Why? Because truth is essential to our faith. Truth is essential to our faith. Now, what is faith? Now, I could talk about faith in various different ways, but just for the sake of this message, I just want to simply define faith as trust. Trust. So truth is essential for us to trust. Isn't that true of any relationship? Right? For you to blindly trust someone without knowing them, right, we'll call you a fool. That is foolish to, to invest your money in a, in, a, in a business proposition or a, a, a partner that you have no knowledge about. Right? It's foolish for you to say, I do to someone if you don't know who they are, what their character is like, to marry someone that you don't know. No, truth, knowledge is so essential in order for us to trust, to have faith. So last week in the transfiguration, Jesus gave us the truth. He revealed himself to his disciples. I'm not just a good moral teacher. I am God. I am God's son. I am divine. That is what, that's the truth that was revealed in the transfiguration. Now, with this truth, there's a demand for a response. How are we going to respond to this truth? How did Jesus want the disciples to respond to this truth? He wanted the disciples to trust him, to believe in him, to place their faith in him. Please listen carefully. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. In this present life and in eternity, how you answer this question of who God is, your life will depend on that. Right? Your life will depend on on that. So what do we believe about God? See, faith is what brings God pleasure. That is what God desires from us. And faith is actually what is going to grant us salvation. Our eternity depends on our faith. And what we see in our passage today is a battle and a struggle of faith on all parties. So I want us to take a, uh, take a look at three things in regards to faith today. First is the obstacles to faith. What are the obstacles to faith? Secondly, the confession of faith that we will hear from the Father. And lastly, the exercise of faith. So the obstacle, the confession, and the exercise. So first, what are the obstacles to faith? See, the inability of the disciples to heal this young boy who was demon-possessed was an opportune moment for uh, the opponents of Jesus the religious leaders that were trying to discredit and disqualify Jesus' ministry. The disciples failed, and they pounced at the opportunity to disqualify Jesus. Because if you can find fault in the student, then you can disqualify the teacher. That was their whole mentality. And so we see the scribes and the disciples arguing while Jesus and the three are making their way down the mountain. And so Jesus asks what's going on. And now this father responds and explains the situation. Again, in verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. 
So this was the whole basis of the conflict that we're seeing here. See, this boy had a severe condition of epilepsy, but this wasn't only a physical condition. It was a spiritual condition. A demon has possessed this boy that caused these epileptic episodes. But all to say that the disciples weren't able to do this. They weren't able to heal this boy. But if you think about it, this was not unfamiliar territory for the disciples. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent, sent out the 12 apostles, and he told them, hey, go out and do my work. I'm going to send you out on missions. Go heal people and go exercise demons. And in Mark 6.13, this is what, what it said. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this was not the first time that the disciples encountered demon possession. They were actually able to cast out demons. So what's changed? What's happened here? Why were they unable to cast out the demon? Listen to Jesus' explanation in verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I going to bear with, uh, to bear with you? Bring him to me. How does Jesus explain the failure of the disciples? Faithlessness. Now, commentators are kind of debating, who is Jesus referring to when he calls out faithless generation? Is he talking about the crowd? Is he talking about the Father? Is he talking about the disciples? Now, there is no clear right, uh, conclusion. In my study, I think Jesus is talking to everybody. Everybody here in the situation is lacking faith, but I think he's specifically looking at all of his disciples. Oh, faithless generation, and he's staring right at his disciples. Why? The disciples are notorious in the gospel of Mark of getting Jesus wrong. They're notorious for their faithlessness again and again. The very ones that were living with Jesus, seeing everything that Jesus were, uh, was doing, they lacked faith. They did not trust in Jesus. When they were in the boat with Jesus and there was a, a crazy storm coming about, they were scared for their lives. And Jesus, what did he say? Where is your faith? And then again, when Jesus is walking on water, the disciples are freaking out because they don't recognize him. They didn't get it. And Jesus then still is like, do you still not know? And then after feeding thousands of individuals with five pieces of bread and two pieces of fish, their hearts were hardened. They didn't get it. They didn't understand who Jesus was. And the idea of their hearts being hardened was just straight up. They did not believe. There was just unbelief. The disciples who had firsthand experience, who had direct access to the Savior of the world, failed to believe and failed to trust in him. And so Jesus calls them out, you faithless people, you faithless generation. What got in the way? What got in the way of the disciples' faith or the lack of faith? Why, what, 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 how can we explain this? What are the obstacles to faith? First one is this. The first obstacle to faith is an incomplete, faulty knowledge of Jesus. It's bad theology. That's the first obstacle. The disciples got Jesus wrong on numerous occasions. They just saw him as a, a political warrior king who's going to re redeem their nation to establish their own nation. They didn't understand that Jesus was the Son of God who had divine authority and power. When they, when, when they, when they should have relied upon him, 
when they should have gone to him, when they should have trusted in him, rather they trusted in themselves because they downplayed his divine nature. Brothers and sisters, do you guys see it? There is a very strong relationship between truth and trust. Truth and trust. Strong correlation. Because they did not have the truth of Jesus. They didn't get the truth of Jesus. Even though Jesus said, this is who I am, they still didn't get it. And so they relied on themselves and instead of the power of Christ. Now, I have to be careful here because just because you know and just because you have the truth does not necessarily mean that you have a deep trust in him. Because we know plenty of people that have good theology, good sound theology, but yet they still lack faith. But this, thing is, this one thing is true. You cannot grow in a deep trust in Christ unless you truly know who he is. You can't. Because we cannot trust what we don't know. The second obstacle to faith, and naturally we want to say it's doubt, right? The obstacle to our faith is doubt. And a lot of people say the opposite of faith is doubt. I don't think so. I think doubt can be a very helpful tool in helping us grow in a deeper trust and deeper knowledge of Jesus, especially if that doubt is, is explored in a healthy and reasonable way. I don't think the opposite of faith is doubt. I think the opposite of faith is self-sufficiency. It's self-sufficiency, relying upon oneself for my life and my salvation. See, this was the problem. This was the problem of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were so self-reliant. They were so self-righteous. They wanted to justify themselves based on their good works, based on their good deeds, based on the observation of the law. Their confidence was in themselves for salvation and not in Jesus. So they weren't able to see Jesus for who he really was, as a savior of sinners. The same is true for the disciples. Because the disciples have gone through this already. They were already sent out by Jesus, given the tools and the means to cast out demons. What did they do here? They relied on their previous experience. They thought the power that Jesus gave them was their own to be used for their own, uh, uh, for their own ministry, failing to realize that it was actually the power of God that allowed them to exercise demons. So here we see the disciples being self-sufficient, self-reliant, leaning and depending upon their previous experience for this specific demon possession to cast out the demon. This was a problem of the religious leaders. This was a problem of the disciples. And this is a problem with us. This very obstacle of self-sufficiency. See, these two obstacles often go hand in hand. The argument goes like this. If Jesus is not a sufficient savior, we have to make up for his insufficiency, right? If he can't properly, adequately provide us salvation, then somewhere, somewhere along the line, we have to come in and we have to provide for ourselves. And that's what we see the disciples do. Right, who better to trust in? If Jesus can't be trusted, then I'm going to trust in myself. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get that degree. I'm going to do my best. See, the battle of the Christian faith can be summarized. The obstacle and the, and the battle of the Christian faith can be summarized with this one question that you need to be able to answer. Is Jesus sufficient? 
Is Jesus alone sufficient? Or do we have to come in and play a part in our salvation? See, this question, is Jesus sufficient, oftentimes in America, it falls on deaf ears. It just does. Why? Because here in America, we can have whatever we want. You can achieve anything that you want. You can be a self-made man. You can be a self-made woman. If you just work hard enough, if you study hard enough, if you try hard enough, you can get whatever it is that you want. And some of us, we have it. Some of us, we have the American dream. We have everything that we possibly want. So what need is there for God? See, the temptation of self-reliance is stronger here than elsewhere in the world. We, are, we have people here that are so accomplished. You have so many things. You have a home. You have a car. You have clothes. You have food. You have perfect weather in Southern California. What more can you want? What more do you need? There's no room. There's no need for God. There's no room for God because I have all that I could possibly want. I'm perfectly capable and able. And that is why faith, when you, when you look at the faith in other countries, in developing countries, and you see people believing in Jesus, the substance to their faith is altogether different than that, that, that in America. And I'm not saying this as a judgment. It's just an observation that I made. See, these Christians in Kyrgyzstan, a lot of them are hiding. They're scared for their own lives. If you look at their faith, there's a, there's a greater resolve. Why? Because there's a greater desperation. And that is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing that he says is, blessed are who? The poor. Not the rich, not the wealthy, not the self-sufficient. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is a struggle for us, especially in America. See, salvation happens when we come to an end of ourselves. That's, that's when we see salvation happen. That's when we see faith grow, is when we come to an end. We've reached our limit. I can't do anything. I can't do anything. See, self-sufficiency suffocates our faith. Self-sufficiency suffocates faith. See, when you have nothing, you start looking outside of yourself. When you, when you just hit rock bottom, you start looking. See, poverty creates opportunity for faith. Poverty creates opportunity for faith, and oftentimes it stimulates faith. And so we see an example of poverty and desperation from this father, don't we? We see poverty and desperation. And the second thing we want to see about faith is found in the confession of faith from this father. See, the boy is brought before Jesus, and the spirit within the boy is triggered. He starts having an epileptic uh, episode, and Jesus asks this father in verse 21, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. This is a destructive demon. Now, as a father myself, I can only imagine, I, I, can, I can sense, I can see the deep anguish and pain that this father is in. It happened since he was a child. As a little boy, he's been experiencing this torment. And then this father, very weak and tentatively, asked Jesus to do something. This is what he says, if you can do anything, 
can do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. Such a tentative, uncertain faith in Jesus, isn't it? If you can do anything, please. Your disciples failed. I have no other options. If you can just do anything, please help. The disciples failed. And so we see this man's faith being so weak. How does Jesus respond? Very shockingly. This is so funny. Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can. His father's like, if you can do something, and Jesus turns it around and says, no, if you can. See, it's not about, it's not, it's not about Jesus' abilities or capability. Jesus is God. He could do whatever he wants. What's preventing the son from being healed is not Jesus' divine ability. It's unbelief. The, 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 the problem is unbelief. It's unbelief. And so Jesus tells him, if you can, because anything is possible for one that believes. James Edwards, in his description of this interaction, makes this very profound kind of observation. This is what he says. The sole bridge between frail humanity and the all-sufficiency of God is faith. So it's not, a, it's not a question of, God, are you able? It's not a question of, Jesus, are you capable? No. It's about human unbelief. Now, the bridge between frail humanity and God's all-sufficient power is faith. It's belief. And so Jesus turns the table and says, like, if you believe, not, a, not about if I can, if you believe. And he's asking the Father, do you believe in me? The ball's in your court. I'm willing, I'm able, but are you willing to believe? And then the Father responds in such an amazing but very puzzling way. I believe. Help my unbelief. All right, well, how are we to make the, uh, sense of this confession of faith? He's like, I believe, sort of. I kind of believe. And God, actually, you need to help me to believe. Right, this, this is such a weak faith, isn't it? So easy to just like dissect this and be like, man, this father was just, he didn't really have much left. See, what this father is not asking, okay, he's not asking Jesus to, hey, raise my level of faith that deems it worthy for you to heal my son. Right? This kind of congruent faith. No, that's not what Jesus, uh, this father is asking Jesus. He's just simply acknowledging the truth that he doesn't have the faith. He just, he's just honest. He's like, I, I believe kind of, but I don't really believe too. So I need you to help me. Such an honest confession of faith. Uh, what, what are we seeing here from this father? This father is basically throwing a Hail Mary He's just throwing a Hail Mary. Why? Why is he so desperate? Because his disciples failed. The disciples failed him. Right? And so he throws a Hail Mary of a response. I believe. Help my unbelief. And he really thought it just probably wasn't going to do it. This probably wasn't going to do it. But what happens? What happens? How does Jesus respond to this confession of faith? Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up 
and he arose. Jesus healed this boy. Although weak and spotty at best, Jesus accepts his father's faith. And so what do we learn in this interaction? What is it that we learn about faith? It's not the intensity or the amount of faith that Jesus is looking for in us. It's not. He's not looking for this intense or a great abundance of faith. No. He's interested in whom and where the little faith that you have is being placed in. See, I'm sure, think about it. I'm sure this father, knowing and hearing about Jesus' disciple and their ministry, right? Mark chapter 6, they went on a mission, they exercised demons. Knowing that about them, I, I believe this father's faith was actually very fervent. He was probably very excited knowing that the disciples can cast out demons. He, he was probably so excited. I'm sure these disciples can do it because they've done it before. But what happened? The disciples failed to deliver. They couldn't perform. And so now he sees Jesus. And I can't help but think that Jesus was a spiritual rebound. The disciples failed. So Jesus, I'm going to give you a shot. So what we see in this father's faith is sloppy seconds, isn't it? It's sloppy seconds. The disciples couldn't do it. My faith is dying. Jesus, I don't have much to go on but I'm going to give this to you. Sloppy seconds. But yet, Jesus accepted it. He accepted it. Even though he was a spiritual rebound, he accepted it. But what we see here, listen very carefully, guys. Please. The leftover faith was better than the initial faith. The leftover faith of this father was better than the initial faith that he had in his disciples. Why? Because an insufficient faith placed in a sufficient Savior is better than a sufficient faith placed in an insufficient source. Let me say that one more time. An insufficient faith placed in a sufficient Savior is better than a sufficient faith placed in an insufficient source. That's why Jesus accepted this leftover faith of this father. The weak faith of this father was effective because it was placed in a sufficient Savior in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, friends, I want to ask you today, what is the source of your confidence and trust? What is the source What do you place your confidence in whom or in what? Do you place your confidence and trust in? See, for many of us, it's our savings account. It's our bank statement. For others, it's our careers. For others, it's our resume or our GPA. It may be your family. It may be relationships. It might be a boyfriend or girlfriend. It might be your spouse. It might be your children. It may even be your own goodness and your own morality, your own righteousness. But can I ask you this? All the things that I mentioned, how often has it disappointed you? How, how often have you come away saying, oh my gosh, I feel so secure now. I feel so secure because I got a job. And then the market crashes. Oh, I have such an amazing wife. I could just trust and be so confident and then you get in a fight. 
oh, my kids are so awesome. They're so beautiful. And they start rebelling. How often do these things offer security and satisfaction? See, sometimes this is what God does. God says, go ahead. Go ahead and place your confidence and trust in these things. He allows us to. He allows us to experience a certain level of success. He allows us to experience some of these amazing blessings. These are all blessings. He says, go ahead. Go ahead and place your confidence and trust in them. The reason why God allows us to do this, even though he knows that it's going to disappoint and frustrate us, is because he wants to show that these are insufficient sources. They're inadequate. They're full of holes. They cannot hold us up. See, sometimes God allows us to hit rock bottom. He, he allows us to exhaust every option out there in this world to find satisfaction until we're left with nothing. Yes, it sucks. Yes, it's painful. But it's only when you hit rock bottom that you realize that, man, I need something more. I need someone better than these things that, that fail to deliver its promises. And that's when we start looking and turning to God. So yes, there's pain. Yes, there's suffering. But it is a gift of God to help us to realize these un- insufficient, like these things that cannot hold us up for us to look to God. And so even though our faith is waning, right? Because we're tired, we're exhausted. We've given all our faith to these things and, and we just have a little bit left. And we turn to God. You would think, man, God, I don't want your... God, why would he want our leftovers? You would think that. Why would he want our leftover faith? But what do we see here? He accepts it. That's how good our father is. That's how good and willing our father is to save us. So again, who do you trust and where is your confidence today? So we looked at the obstacles to faith. We saw this amazing confession of faith. And I want to close with the exercise of faith. You know, someone asked me and Jane this week, after being married for eight years, do you guys still try? Do you guys still try in loving each other, right, keeping up the romance? And it's a, it's a fair question because we've seen a lot of couples after years of marriage, they just stop trying. <laughs> and, um, you know, who tr- and he also asked, who tries more? Is it you or is it Jane? And, you know, uh, the PC answers, oh, we both try. But to be honest, I try more. I try a little harder, right? Um, and I'm okay with that. But, but we see this pattern in, in couples that have been dating for a long time or married for a long time. They just stop trying, right? They stop trying. And, and, and so we say, you know, for better or for worse, so even I'm at my worst, you got to still love me. <laughs> right? It's really sad, right? But sometimes we see this happen in relationships, to give our minimal. But if you base your relationship with anyone on pre- like just on assumptions or presumptions, that relationship will quickly grow stale. And, and there will be conflict and dissatisfaction, right? If you base it upon just this, oh, you said I do, so now you just got to accept me as I am. So the sinful and lazy side of us, we will always ask this question, what's the minimum requirement, right? What's the minimum requirement? See, if Jesus is okay with weak faith, then why do I need to try? Isn't that a natural response to this? If Jesus accepts just the little faith that we have, then I'm okay with that little faith that I have. 
What's the minimum requirement? Now, this works maybe in academics or in athletics, right? I got to get a 2.0 to be eligible to play. Or I got to get a 2.0 just to graduate, right? So that might be okay in the realm of academics or even athletics. But when you place that kind of same standard upon a relationship, you're in for a rude awakening. That does not work. See, religion will ask, Religion will ask, what do I need to do? What's the minimum that I need to do to get into heaven? But Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. So you try to apply this minimal requirement in a relationship, see how that goes. Oh, you get broken up very quickly. You're going to have to see a marriage counselor very soon. It does not work because intimacy and trust will disintegrate if we're asking the question, what's the minimum? But yet so many of us were like, yeah, let me, let, me, let me just work with this little faith that I have. See, guys, get, faith is a gift. Faith is not even our, our own. God gives it to us. But even with that gift, we can just let it sit there and not do anything. Or we can work it out. We can maximize it so that we can experience greater pleasure, deeper joy, greater intimacy, and a sense of assurance That's what happens when we work out our faith. We just get so enamored by Jesus, and we're so confident that he's with us, and then we're sure of our salvation. When we work out our faith, when we don't, that's when doubt starts to creep in. That's when we become insecure and uncertain about our salvation. So faith is a gift, and we got to work it out. Now, how do we exercise our faith? How are we going to grow in it? See, the disciples were curious about this. And so they went into the house and the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we do this? And in verse 29, Jesus answered them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer. Now apparently this form of demon possession was a little bit more extreme, that you had to pray, right? I don't know how it worked before. Maybe it was just their words, but Jesus said, you got to pray. And the disciples failed to pray showing us that they were sufficient in themselves. They thought they were sufficient in themselves. Got to pray. How do we hurdle the obstacle of self-sufficiency? It's through prayer. The exercise of prayer, the exercise of faith. Now, this is, what Christianity 101. You've heard this before. You understand why prayer is so important. Right? But yet it is so absent in our lives. See, prayer is the most purest, most rawest form and expression of faith for us. Why? Because in prayer, when we get down on our knees, we're acknowledging that we're not God, that we are dependent, humble, needy creatures. We, we need God. That is what prayer expresses. But yet so many of us are not praying. Again, for the reason that we don't need anything from him. Now, Listen carefully to what I just said. We don't need anything from God. Now, there is the fatal error in our understanding of prayer. I don't need him, so I don't pray. I want to explain it to you uh, this way. And I just started recently work, uh, going back to the gym because I was, I was getting overweight, just the honest truth. Um, and as I'm going back to the gym again and again, I can't help but stare at people. I know it's kind of creepy, but especially, especially the buff ones, right? The ones that are like, you can't get any bigger. 
Why are you still here, right? They're, I mean, their pecs are huge, their biceps are huge, and, and it's just everything's in the right place, right? And you're just impressed. But as, you, as, you, as you're going to the gym, you start seeing the regular people. And as you're seeing the regular people, you see their pattern of working out, right? And what I've observed is there are a bunch of people with great upper bodies. But then I stare down at the legs, and it's like chicken legs. It's just stick skinny, and there's upper is just huge, right? Why? Because they only work out at the bench. They're only at the, 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 the freeways, and they're just doing dumbbells. They're never at the squats, and they're never doing deadlifts. They're just working out the upper body because they just want to look good, right? They're, they're top-heavy, right? That's what we say. They're just top-heavy, and <laughs> their legs are weak. For anyone that works out, like for real, you guys know that you guys need to have a strong foundation. You need strong legs, right? Strong thighs, strong glutes, whatever. It, that's how you get strong all together. But if you just work out your upper body, it just looks good. It doesn't mean you're strong. Now, why do I share this with you? When I say that you don't need anything from God, therefore you don't pray, you have an imbalanced view of prayer. Because there are various forms of prayer. But when we say we don't need anything, we're only talking about one form of prayer, and that's prayers of supplication, making requests to God. God, I need this. Help me with that. that those are prayers of supplication. And for so many of us, we only pray when we need something. Brothers and sisters, that is imbalanced. You're top-heavy in your, in your faith when you're just praying when you need something. You're missing out. You're, 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 you're selling yourself short if that's how you pray. We need to be better balanced. If faith is a muscle, we need to work it out properly. We need to work it out properly. Our faith hasn't grown because we're skipping out on important exercises of prayer. Important exercises of prayer. Why do, you, why do you think you don't need anything in your life right now? Why do you think that is? Is it not because God has given you everything? Isn't it because God is the source of all good and perfect gifts? See, what's lacking in your prayer is not the prayers of supplication, it's prayers of thanksgiving which is another exercise of prayer, which is another exercise of faith. Are you praying and thanking God for everything that you have? Or do you, are you convinced that you're solely responsible for all that you've been given? Please, don't kid yourselves. <laughs> it is God who's blessed us with every good and perfect gift. And so what, what, what happens when you're not pray, praying prayers of thanksgiving, you can't help but think that you're responsible Are you top-heavy in your faith? Now, I know that there are people here that it's not true that you have everything you want. I, I know there are people sitting here that you're in constant want. You're living paycheck to paycheck. You don't know when your next meal is going to come. You have loved ones that are suffering. You're struggling in your relationships, in your marriage, with your kids. You're always constantly in want. And you, so you look at these external circumstances and you're like, I can't pray. I, I don't, I, you're, you're barely hanging on to faith. Like, what are you to do then if that's you today? Very simply, very simply, do what this father did. Because what we see in this father's 
declaration or his confession of faith is a prayer of confession and supplication. I believe, but God, I'm, I'm barely holding on. I, I need your help. I want to believe in you more, but I, I just can't because of these things. Please help me. That's a good place to start. If that's you today, that's a good place to start. I believe, help my unbelief. God, this sucks. Please help me. That prayer itself right, shows us again that he is God, that he's sufficient, and that we are not. Brothers and sisters, your muscles might be small and weak today. But again, it's not about your strength. It's about his sufficiency. He can take our weak faith and he can move mountains. That's what is declared because he's our sufficient savior. And this prayer, this gift of prayer was afforded to us at the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. On that cross, he offered a prayer up to God. My God, my God, where are you? Deafening silence. God the Father did not respond to his son. Why? Why did the son go unheard? So that you and me, sinners like you and me, can go heard by our Heavenly Father. This is a gift. Why not exercise in it? Why not work it out? Why not maximize it? He's our Father. He wants to hear from us. So brothers and sisters, this week and the weeks to come, let's go to him in humility. Let's go to him as if he is, really, and he is sufficient. He's there to listen to our prayers. He might not answer the way that we want want him to answer, but he will answer regardless in his perfect wisdom and sovereignty. So now, right now, let's exercise our faith and go to him in prayer. Let's pray together.